So when we encounter the crucifixion uh, like we just did in Mark 15, uh, a common question we might ask is why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And that's a good question. Uh, Many books have been written to answer that question. Churches have held classes to answer that very question, why did Jesus have to die? It's quite essential for the follower of Jesus Christ to be able to answer that important theological question, why did Jesus have to die? However, on this Good Friday, as we reflect upon and as we remember the death of Jesus Christ, I want us to wrestle with a slightly different question today. Not simply why did Jesus have to die, but why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Or more simply put, why was Jesus crucified? Why did he have to be crucified? You see, reflecting on the death of Jesus, many of us have been conditioned to believe that it is his death that is so scandalous. When in reality, it's not his death in and of itself that was so scandalous. Certainly, his death is awful. The only righteous man to ever walk this earth unrighteously put to death at the hand of sinners. But as we look throughout history, we see that many great men and many great women have had their lives come to an untimely and unjust end. And so it isn't just the death of Jesus that's so scandalous. It's the way in which Jesus died that is so scandalous. It's the way in which Jesus died that should cause our skin to crawl, it should cause our hearts to burst, it should cause our stomachs to absolutely turn. His death on the cross is the scandal. The cross is scandalous. However, looking around our world today, it would seem as though the cross is anything but scandalous to us. Uh, Sure, some people get upset when a cross gets put up in a public space, in a public place. But other than that, we have large collections of crosses. Many of us have jewelry with crosses on them. Many of us decorate our homes or our offices or our cars with a cross. The cross is undeniably the universal symbol of Christianity, and rightly so. Rightly so. We should rejoice in the cross. But the thought that we're doing this today would have been absolutely absurd to people during Jesus' time, to the the Jewish people and to the Gentile alike. It, It would have been horrifically scandalous for them to talk about, to discuss the cross. One theologian writes this about the Jewish perception of the crucifixion. He writes, from the very beginning, The Christian faith was distinguished from the religions which surrounded it by its worship of the crucified Christ. In Israelite understanding, someone executed in this way was rejected by his people, cursed amongst the people of God by the God of the law, and excluded from the covenant of life. Anyone who, condemned by the law as a blasphemer, suffers such a death is accursed and excluded from the circle of the living and from the fellowship of God. The Jews, the Jewish people, the Jews would have been absolutely repulsed by the cross. And with respect to the Gentile understanding of the crucifixion, he writes this. To the humanism of antiquity, or or to the Gentiles, the crucified Christ was an embarrassment. Crucifixion 
was regarded as the most degrading kind of punishment. Thus, Roman humanism always felt, quote, the religion of the cross to be unesthetic, to be unrespectable, to be perverse. It was regarded as an offense against good manners to speak of this hideous death for slaves in the presence of respectable people. And so the Gentiles were repulsed by even mentioning the cross or crucifixion in conversation. And so if that's the case, then why did God, according to his sovereignty and according to his providence, pick this moment in history? Why did he pick this form of punishment? Why did he do it? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, some of us might say, because the form of the punishment was such a painful kind of punishment, God knew that the great power of sin that we faced needed the great pain of the punishment. And and, and yes, while the crucifixion is unimaginably painful, we miss the point and the purpose of the cross if we focus on the pain. You see, the power of the cross lies not in its pain, the power of the cross lies in its shame. If the death of Jesus is understood merely as an unjust death, even even a painful and gruesome death, the whole point of the thing is lost, and here's why. Crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult on an individual's dignity. It was crafted to be second to none in the way that it totally dehumanized and humiliated its victim. And so the power of the cross hinges on its inherent shamefulness. And Jesus was shamed on that cross. He was naked before all to see on that cross. And unlike other forms of of sin, shame draws from this radical, special kind of of evil because there are certain sorts of perverse celebrations that surround other kinds of evil, but there is no glamour, there is no celebration in shame. When we shame someone, we're declaring that person to be utterly worthless. When we shame someone, we're saying that they're disposable, that they're trash on the side of the road. And so when Jesus was crucified, that is what we were saying to him, that he was worthless, that he was disposable, that he was trash on the side of the road. And so the cross was so scandalous during that time because it was so utterly shameful. Now perhaps we don't quite understand how shameful crucifixion was because we have a limited understanding of the nature of crucifixion. In the, in the first phase of crucifixion, it began long before the cross where the, where the person being punished would have been taken aside and stripped of all their clothes and, and whipped 39 times. Many pictures that you see of Jesus depicted in this situation, he's often a a frail person wearing a loincloth, but at this phase of the punishment, he would have been absolutely shamed in his nakedness. And he would have been bent over this post in the most degrading, humiliating position, exposing his entire backside for maximum effect. 
And then, as Mark said, he would have been re-robed with his clothes and paraded through the busy streets of Jerusalem, ridiculed by those in the city for their entertainment as they were watching his demise, watching his shame, and, and people would have thrown all sorts of trash at him. They would have thrown fecal matter at him as his bloodied, broken body walked through those streets. And so we see here shame upon shame upon shame. And at the actual point of crucifixion, after the nails had been hammered through his wrists and through his feet, obliterating the nerves, causing immense, unimaginable agony in that moment, the cross would have been lifted up and and Jesus' tortured, naked body would have been elevated and exposed for, for, for all to see. The only way he would have been able to get his breath was to pull himself up by his wrists or push himself up by his feet, causing more agony as his beaten up back would have rubbed up against the rough wood of the cross. So much pain, so much shame, not to mention all the secondary issues like the inability to control bodily functions, insects feasting on open wounds, unquenchable thirst, muscles cramped, his, his torn up back on that cross. And so here though, it, it might seem like we're turning our attention now back to the pain and, and away from the shame that Jesus was experiencing. But again, what we have to remember here is the context in which all of this is going on. You see, in an ancient Near Eastern context, like, like Jesus's, they had what one writer called an acute sense of personal honor lodged in the body, in the body. And so here's what this means. Harm inflicted on the body was not merely physical pain administered, it was internal shame made external for all to see. For example, if someone's punishment for stealing was amputating their hand, it would be seen as much, much more than physical cruelty or inflicting some sort of permanent handicap. It would mean that amputee would go around and carry with them the visible marks of dishonor and shame for the rest of their lives. Anything done to the body would have been uh, understood as exceptionally cruel, not because of the pain that was inflicted in that moment, but even more so because it caused dishonor and shame. And so again, shame upon shame upon shame. And so, so there Jesus would have been. The one who was with God at the very beginning, the, the only perfect holy person in all of human history, shamed on that cross, utterly alone, isolated on that cross. And I know that in a room with this many people, that there are people here today where we have experienced this in some way or another. That that, that sense of shame and the overwhelming and oppressive feeling of loneliness that shame brings with it. It's been said that that shame is even different than guilt because while guilt is, is feeling bad about something that we've done, shame is feeling bad about who we are as people. Guilt says I've done something bad. Shame says that I am bad. And for some of us, the the shame that we feel or have felt, we've experienced at the hands of someone else. Maybe it was a stranger. Maybe it was a loved one. 
Maybe it was someone we knew, but they inflicted wounds upon us. They sinned against us, and we have been left alone holding on to our shame. And it can feel like drowning. It can feel like darkness, the isolation, the loneliness. For others, maybe we have brought that shame upon ourselves in some way. Living for ourselves, choosing ourself over others, choosing ourself over God. We've made decisions that in the name of success, in the name of our own pleasure, they have led to great, great shame and with it, the crushing sense of loneliness that that brings. For some of us, this shame has been exposed. Others know about this shame. They've seen it. While there are some in this room who secretly still hold on to that shame. We're afraid to let anyone know what's been done to us and what we've done. And so we live isolated and alone with the weight of our shame. And ultimately, this is what sin does. This is what sin does. Sin always brings about shame. Look at the very beginning. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. They chose self over others. They chose self over God. And and what happened when they did this? When they chose sin? Well, shame came flooding in and with sin and shame brought separation. And, and, And you have to hear this. That's the biggest problem with sin and with shame. They, they separate, they isolate, because that's where sin's power thrives. That's where shame's power thrives, in isolation, in the darkness. And so, so that's where we're left in this story, seemingly. On our own, to deal with our sin, to deal with our shame, and, and we all deal with our shame in different ways. Some of us, we, we try to bury our shame. We try to put it out of our mind. We try to ignore it. We come up for excuses for why what we've done isn't that big of a deal or or why what happened to us isn't really that much of a problem because worse things have happened to other people and we try to stuff it down and we try to pretend that everything's okay. But for those of us who do this, we know that sooner or later when we put our heads on our pillows at night, shame begins to rear its ugly head and, and, and all of the pain and isolation and loneliness, it comes flooding back in. Others of us, we try to numb our shame. We try to numb it. We distract ourselves from the shame that we feel by numbing it through entertainment, or through food, or through drugs, or through alcohol, and we run after these other things that we think, that's gonna satisfy me, and and that's gonna bring me pleasure, and that's gonna pacify the, the shame that I feel. But for those of us who do this, we know that it's only a matter of time before the numbing wears off and, and that shame comes running and surging and flooding back in. And we've done nothing at all to deal with our shame problem and still others of us, we try to work our shame off. We try to work it off. We come to church Maybe we're involved and we serve others and we work hard, but, but, but not for the right reasons. Not out of a heart of gratitude, uh, but we're trying to work away our shame. We're, we're trying to make ourselves clean. We're trying to free ourselves from our shame. 
But again, for those of us who do this, we know how exhausting this can be. How utterly exhausting this can be. And and it's only so long before we begin to crack under the weight of working in our our own strength, of, of making ourselves clean, and we see that we've done absolutely nothing to fix our shame problem. Because ultimately, listen, our shame problem is a sin problem. And it's a massive problem that, that, that all of us have, that all of us face. How do we find freedom from the control and havoc that sin and shame can wreak on our lives? How do we free ourselves from, from under the weight uh, uh, of the loneliness of our shame? Because as we just saw, nothing we do works. Nothing we do works. We can't bury it. We can't numb it. We can't work it off. And and so what can we do? What can we do? And this brings us back to the main question. Why was Jesus crucified? Why did he have to die on a cross? And here's why. Here's why Jesus had to die on a cross. Because in his death on that cross, Jesus, once and for all, gave himself over to our greatest enemy to sin and to all of the awful, awful consequences that go along with it. Shame and death and loneliness and separation and isolation. He gave himself over to sin on that shameful, lonely cross to go to war for us, to fight on our behalves to suffer shame upon shame upon shame on the cross because no other form of execution in human history would have been comparable to, would have been proportionate to the extremity of our condition under the power of sin's great evil. And so so why was Jesus crucified? Because the greatness of our shame and the greatness of our sin required the greatest of sacrifices. That's why. And while he took upon himself shame, and while it seems like he was completely and utterly defeated upon that cross, it was actually there on that cross where Jesus was ultimately victorious. It was there on that cross where Jesus, once and for all, won the battle against death and shame and sin. But, but this victory there on the cross that we remember this evening, it's, it's a hidden victory. It's a hidden victory available to see only for those who have the eyes of faith. Because to everyone else, it looks like a massive defeat. But what looks like great defeat is actually an incredible victory. And you see, this is the paradox of the cross. This is the strength of God made manifest in weakness. And so yes, we have a shame problem. Yes, we have a sin problem. And yes, there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. But Jesus did something about it. He did something about it. Because only he could fix our shame problem. Only he can fix our sin problem. And, and we have, and this, 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 is, this is the good news. This is the good news. We have access to this victory. 
We remember this cross and we remember now that we have access to Christ's victory over sin and shame and separation and death. That we can have freedom from under the weight of the oppressiveness of shame because of what Jesus has done for us. But we don't access this victory through our strength. We don't work to get this victory. We access the victory that Christ makes available to us through our own weakness. That's how we get it, through humility. We access it by recognizing that we cannot do it on our own and that we need him. We need his work on our behalf. That the only way through, through the wandering and through the wilderness to victory and to, and, and to reconciliation is, is it's through humility. It's through saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I, I can't fix this problem in my life. I can't free myself from under the weight of of, of this shame. The loneliness, the separation, the brokenness I feel inside Jesus, I know only you can free me from that weight. Only you can heal me in this moment. And so here's what I want us to do right now. I want us to receive this gift. I want us to receive this victory. I want us to claim this victory for ourselves. I want us to humble ourselves again before the mighty, powerful cross of Christ here tonight. I want us to to recognize that we, in and of ourselves, we are powerless against this. We are powerless against our our sin. We are powerless against the shame that that, that comes with it. And so so this evening, would you stop trying to numb it? Would you stop trying to bury it? Would you stop trying to to clean yourself up? And would you just, again, humble yourself before Jesus this evening and acknowledge that you absolutely need him? And as the band sings these next couple of songs over us, I I want us to reflect on these realities, these truths that that we've encountered this evening. And when you're ready and when you're able up front, we have the bread, the cup, we have communion elements. And and what I want us to do is as these next songs are sung over us and as we remember and as we reflect and we receive again, as we receive anew, as we receive afresh the victory that Jesus accomplished on our behalf, that he's defeated the power of sin, that he cleanses us from all our shame. And when we're ready, would we stand up? Would we receive Christ's victory on our behalf and take those elements when you're ready. Lord Jesus, we just, we thank you. We thank you for what you endured. We thank you for what you went through. We thank you for the model and example of of love that you are. But even more than that, we, we thank you for the perfect life you lived. We we thank you that you in our place did what we could not do. You were the only righteous person to ever walk this earth, the only individual to ever suffer an unjust death. And you did that on our behalf. And so as we set aside this time to remember that, to reflect upon that, I pray that your spirit would cause the reality of what you did nearly 2,000 years ago to wash over us in this place? And would we feel the weight 
of your sacrifice? Would we feel the weight of what you've done? But Lord, would we also walk out of here feeling the sense of freedom that you've accomplished in our place? Well, because while tonight is heavy and while tonight is weighty, Lord, we know that in the midst of this seeming defeat, you were victorious. And so I pray that we would wrestle with that tension tonight. That we would wrestle with the paradox of the cross where, 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 where you seem to have been defeated, but, but through weakness, you were shown to be strong and you conquered sin and death once and for all. And so again, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause the reality of that to weigh upon us, to transform us, and to change us. And Jesus, we are just so thankful for you. We pray all of this in your powerful name.